couple of weeks ago, the government tested its new public alert system at 3pm on the 23rd of April. Millions of mobile phone users should have received a message and allowed alarm to notify them of the test. And something like this should have appeared on the screen. Did you get the message? I did, but I didn't hear it. I actually found it at half past eight that evening in my notifications, which is pretty ominous for me should there be an emergency 20 minutes away in the future, because I'll probably miss it. Some didn't get it at all. Some didn't get it at all. Do you know, it's not always the phrase you want to hear in life, is it? Did you get the message? Did you get the message? Whenever I hear that phrase, I always think, oh no, I'm in trouble. Did you get the message? What message? I'm in trouble here. Even worse is when somebody says, did you not pass on my message? Because that means double trouble. That means trouble from the person who's supposed to have given you the message and the person to whom you're supposed to have given it to. You know, I think so many times in life we get so many messages, we just, I just can't deal with them all. And I get to the point of saying, do you know what, enough's enough today. No more messages. Last week, if you remember rightly, I looked at what were the disciples left with after Jesus' resurrection. They were left with an example to follow. But not only did Jesus leave them with an example to follow, he left them with a message to pass on. In Luke's Gospel, some of the final words that he records before Jesus' ascension, we read at the beginning of the meeting, and it says this as they appear on the screen. Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you endued with power from on high. Well, this was Jesus' message to the disciples. And you know what? This was a message they were going to have to deal with. They couldn't just ignore it. They were to be witnesses and messengers themselves. That's what he was saying. We don't get an idea, or much of an idea, as to how the disciples actually reacted to this instruction from Jesus. I think for many of us, when something good happens to us, we want to tell people about it, don't we? Even if it's a relatively small thing. If you're a Facebook user, you'll see today there'll be plenty of people wanting to tell you of something good that's happened in their lives. We naturally want to share when positive things happen. This was evident in Jesus' time. You think of the women who went to the tomb. They ran back wanting to share the good thing that had happened, that they'd found the tomb empty. And yet there were also moments for those disciples in those weeks after Jesus' resurrection of real apprehension. Firstly, these folk had not always understood the message of salvation that Jesus brought. Their understanding of the scripture regarding the coming Messiah 
was very much in stark contrast to the traumatic events that actually did happen. They had this idea the Messiah was coming in victory. He was coming as a great warrior. They were the chosen people of God. This was not how redemption was going to happen. And yet they'd seen it happen in these recent weeks. This was quite a profound challenge for Jesus to actually say to them, I want you to go into the world and talk about the forgiveness of sins proclaimed in my name. That was quite a challenge to them. They had quite a sense of privilege of being a chosen people. And so at this moment in time, their whole identity and belief system was in conflict. And that's actually what Jesus was addressing through all the numerous resurrection appearances. He was addressing their identity. He was addressing what they actually believed and what they understood. And if you go back over all those resurrection narratives, notice that Jesus did not paper over the cracks. He didn't pussyfoot around. He named the disciples' failure, whether it was Thomas in the upper room or whether it was Peter on the shore. He didn't paper over the cracks. But one thing he did do, having shown them their failures, he responded with forgiveness. And so in the scripture that we read at the very beginning from Luke's gospel, Jesus addressed the disciples' fears. He addressed their doubts. It said there in that scripture reading that we, we read that Jesus opened up the scriptures in one of his resurrection narratives so that their minds could be opened up to the new and radical way. And with this all came the instruction that they were to be witnesses. But it came with a reassurance, a reassurance of the future. There, look in that last verse. You are going to get some power to help you. I'm giving you this task. I'm not just leaving you an example to follow. I'm expecting you to go into the world and be messengers, but I'm going to help you. I'm going to give you power from on high. And so they understood. They understood that they had a new purpose. A singing company talked about God has a purpose for your life and he cares for you. This was it coming in reality for that verse bunch of disciples. They understood their new purpose. They were to be messengers for the risen king. They got the message. It was clear as crystal. And you know what? I think we do too. I think you and I know we're expected to be messengers. We understand what God expects us to do. And as we draw close to Christ more deeply, we naturally would want to share the good news of what he's done for us with other people. And yet, even though we get the message, I think for many of us, the thought of sharing our faith with another person is still quite an intimidating thing. Would I be fair in that assumption? I think I am. We feel ill-equipped. We feel underqualified. We think that there's some technique we've got to master that will help us with the things we should do. I used to worry about this. 
I used to worry about this all the time. How can I be an effective witness for Jesus? I used to have in the front of my Bible texts, six-point texts that would, if I ever met somebody that needed leading to Jesus, I followed it. Never used to work for me. I'd panic. I'd forget where they were. I wouldn't know how to link them. And I think this is the reality for many people when it comes to sharing our faith. I think if we try and follow a technique, it's a bit like following a Yorkshire pudding recipe, only to find out they come out of the oven as flat as pancakes at the end. They just enlighten our sense of failure. Well, actually, we know what we're to do. We get the message. We are to be witnesses. But when we put pressure on ourselves to deliver in this way, we inevitably struggle. I think there's an important thing that we need to remember, and I think it helps us to look at this story from Acts chapter 10 of Peter at Cornelius' house. Because in the book of the Acts, we read many instances of the Acts of the apostles preaching the good news and the people responding there and then and getting saved. That's brilliant. This wonderful evangelist would get up, tell the gospel story, 2,000 people would come to Jesus. We can't deny that. But actually, this story here in Acts 10, to me, is more indicative of the way that God often works in the lives of people. Peter did not know Cornelius, never met him before in his life, never seen him before at all. Despite being a Roman, Cornelius was a worshipper of God. He was a Gentile who was following Jewish doctrine and practices. He was respected by the Jewish community. He was devout. He regularly prayed. That's what we read there in Acts chapter 10. And one afternoon while he's praying, he sees a vision of an angel of God who told him that God had heard his prayers. And the angel told Cornelius that he had to go and find Peter who was staying in Joppa at the house of Simon. And so what did Cornelius do? He sent two servants out and one of his soldiers to go grab Peter and then bring him back. And this is where we picked up the story. In the meantime, while all this is happening, God is preparing Peter's heart. Because Peter knows full well that he shouldn't be associating with Gentiles. And so God had to prepare Peter for this encounter and so he gives him a vision saying that actually what God has made clean is clean and so suddenly Peter's able to go preach to the Gentiles why do I think this is a helpful story because I think this is what happens an awful lot in his theology John Wesley describes what was going on here as something called prevenient grace Provenient grace. You won't find it in the Bible referred to like that. But what Wesley argued was that salvation begins with provenient grace. Well, what does that mean? The word provenient comes from the Latin word pre, meaning before, veneer, meaning to come. So provenient means coming before. And provenient grace can be described as the work of the Holy Spirit in drawing us to God. You know, before you and I ever make a conscious decision to seek God, God's grace is already at work in us. And this doctrine of provenient grace that 
Wesley formed teaches that God is already at work in a person's life long before there are any visible signs that they're being drawn to God. And that is true. You know, when I look back at my life, provenient grace was at work in my life. I didn't wait for some bloke to preach a message and suddenly respond there and then. God was already drawing me to himself in the weeks and months before. You know, the mysterious work of God in the life of someone begins long before you and I arrive, and it continues long after we've left the scene. Now, I find that helpful. When I think of my task as a messenger, I find it helpful to know that the onus is not all on me. Because God's already been there, and God will be there long after I've gone. I haven't been given the immense task of convincing people that they should follow God. What I'm asked to do is help people see the work of God that's already happening in their lives. That's what God asked me to do. In our witness, God goes before us. God is there with us, and God remains after us. Witness is not about us. It's about God and his presence in the lives of others. I love this part in Acts chapter 10 that we read, verse 44. The Holy Spirit doesn't let Peter finish his little spiel. He's halfway through free-flow sermon. And while he's speaking, the Holy Spirit just says, ah, don't need you anymore, thanks. You've done your job. And this is what God does. The Holy Spirit acts through us when he can and in spite of us when he has to. He works in us when he can and in spite of us when he has to. God He's already on the case. Friends, you and I are to be messengers. We know that. We get the message. But I want you to understand, God is already on the case. And as, a, as, he, as his messengers, we are to learn to listen and collaborate with him and the Holy Spirit. Rick Warren, in his Purpose Driven Church book, says this. We should stop praying, Lord, bless what I'm doing and start praying, Lord, help me to do what you are blessing. This is provenient grace. This is God already working in the world. Before we arrive. And actually, it's our job to find out what he's doing and be there to help him in that. The great Methodist evangelist Rob Frost says this, too much evangelism is done in the power of human personality and creativity and not enough is done in the power of God. When I thought about witnessing as a young man, I thought it was all to, about me. I thought I had to do it all. It was my personality. It was how I could be created enough to woo people to, to Christ. No, 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 no. Good messaging, good evangelism is done in the power of God. So if God's already on the case, what, what, what do we do then? 
Where, where, where does that leave us? Well, whilst we feel that uncomfortable fear when talking about our faith, the Spirit is there to help us. When Jesus gave the disciples an example to follow that we talked about last week, he was actually telling them that one of the most visible ways that they would share the gospel with us was through their lives and their deeds. And that's exactly what happened in the lives of the disciples in those coming days. Their lives were compelled, they were transformed by Christ. And these lives transformed by Christ were compelling proof of the reality of God. People knew what they were like, saw what they'd become and said, wow, this is compelling proof. So they were messengers through their lives and their deeds. And so it is with us. Friends, I came to Christ because of a girl in my class at school. Not because I was made a junior soldier at Hull Central, age seven. Or because I played in a YP band or sang in the singing company. I came to Christ because of a girl in my class at school who was a Methodist. And what she did was she lived in our school her life for Christ. She wasn't a holy Jew. She was just so different. She compelled me to the reality of Christ because she was living in life and deed, the life of Christ. She made me want to know more about God as a living reality, not just somebody I'd read about at the Bible at the, at the core or somebody I'd sung about. And because of her life, she enabled me to find Christ for myself properly. You know, sometimes I think we have to do a bit more than just life and deed, though. Our lives and our deeds alone are never enough to fully communicate the gospel. We should always be able to make clear the source of our life change and the motivation behind our deeds. And that's where sharing our faith comes in. Friends, it doesn't have to be complicated. It's about sharing our story as the Holy Spirit gives us opportunity. I've told you many times before, you have a story to tell. And all God asks you to do is share it as the Holy Spirit gives you opportunity. And that's all that Peter was doing here at the home of Cornelius. This wasn't a lecture on the 11 articles of faith that he understood. This was Peter sharing his story. It's about speaking our love for Jesus. You know, as a messenger, I might not be able to answer all the questions people ask me, but what I can do is tell what Christ means to me and how he's changed my life. And I'd like to think that every single one of you can do that. Surely we can all articulate what Christ means to us and how he's changed our life. People might argue with the answers to some of our things that we say and present us with deep philosophical questions, but what they can't argue with is the testimony of a changed life. Finally, the most important thing you can also do for your friends 
is to pray for them. Thy kingdom come that we've introduced this morning is invoking provenient grace. It's asking God to start working in the lives of people who yet don't know him. You and I can't open someone's heart to the truth of the gospel, but God can by his spirit. So in these days, let's be praying that God will give us opportunities to share Christ with our friends, our work colleagues. You know, the disciples were eloquent. They weren't the finished product. But God was there before them. God was there with them. And God remained after them. And it will be the same for us. Two things the disciples were given in those post-resurrection days. An example to follow and a message to share. Last week we talked about the example to follow. This week we talk about the message to share. You and I are going to be messengers. We don't do it in our own strength. God goes before us. God is there with us. And God is there after we've gone. God is on the case. But we have to do our bit too. Or may it be so for us all. Amen. Let's pray together. Just for a few quiet moments, we've no song this morning, we've no background music or anything like that. I just want you to think about how you feel about giving that message. How do you feel about sharing faith? You can be honest might be something that actually you really struggle with. might be something you feel you're really lousy at. Well, this morning, why don't you just come before God and just ask him to help you? This morning as well in the quietness, Who do you want God to be working in the lives of at this moment in time? How can he be doing his provenient grace in their life? Pray for them. Maybe this morning in the quietness we should stop praying, Lord, bless what I'm doing and start praying, Lord, help me to do what you're blessing. And instead of relying on our human personality and our creativity we start doing our message giving in the power of God. Father God, this morning, we get it. We get the message. Just like the disciples did many, many years ago, we get the message that not only are we to follow your example, but we're also to be people who share our faith, that we are to be people who share the message of the gospel, who share our story of what you've done for us, how much you mean to us. And in truth, if we're being honest with you, Lord, we find that quite difficult at times. And so forgive us for those times when we do find it difficult, but help us, help us to do it effectively. We don't do it alone, we know that. And we thank you that in this world, you're already working, drawing people to yourself. You don't need us. You work with us where you can and in spite of us. 
So, Lord, in this moment and in these days, just give us people in our hearts that we can just share our story with. It doesn't have to be complicated. But, Holy Spirit, just give us some opportunities and give us all that we need to do that in your name. Lord, we get the message. May we be messengers for you who share that message with others. Amen. Amen.